0: Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. Joining me is Paul Palmieri. He is someone who's who's done it. He had a company, built it up, sold it, sold it to AO, took it public too. Paul, do you remember the day that you went public?
1: Absolutely.
0: March 28, 2012. March 28, 2012. Tell me what the experience was like. What stands out for you from the day that you took your company public?
1: the breakfast in the morning, which was incredible at the New York Stock Exchange, Mm -hmm. having your family there. I had gotten some advice from Jeff Weiner who had just taken LinkedIn public and Jeff Jordan who had just taken open table public and they had recommended NYSE over NASDAQ to me. And one of the things they said was, hey, that day is just an incredible day. They put on a great breakfast, bring your family, bring your mom. Uh, It's such a special, special moment. And boy, uh, boy was it for Millennial! Was a great, great day.
0: Millennial Media. How would you describe what that uh, company did?
1: Millennial Media um, brought advertising to mobile devices and uh, enabled an entire generation of developers to have a business model for building free apps. Uh, we started the company as an economic platform for developers in the very early days, where they really only could charge for their apps, but apps really needed to be free a a year or two later, along comes the iPhone and along comes the app store. And we were positioned incredibly well uh, in that moment. We were able to then grow the company over seven or eight years, uh, take it public uh, NYSE. And it was a, it was a fantastic build of a company and a team that has gone on now. Members of our team are either the CEO or the founder of 40 different companies. Wow. And i uh, just so proud uh, of the entire experience there.
0: In many ways, you were so ahead of your time when, when it came to advertising, to mobile. You also did a bunch of acquisitions. And then of course you sold the company. You are now here as the founder of Tradeswell. And the, the interesting thing for me right now is 2020, just made e-commerce explode. I see it in my interviews. What I didn't see until I started talking to you is all these companies are selling on multiple platforms because they have to. And you help me understand that they then have to keep track of how much inventory they have, how much they sold on each platform, what's selling well, and not just keep track of inventory, not just keep track of what's selling, but also keep track of what they're advertising so that they're not promoting a product that actually got sold out because of, I don't know, a sale, because of a sale where on on their Shopify store or on Amazon or something else, right? That's right. And that is the big, hairy, audacious challenge that you've taken on for yourself with Tradeswell. You want to take the whole, I guess the whole marketing ecosystem for this business on.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, for us, we did, we looked at this problem. And exactly similar to this developer problem we solved four years ago, we saw a market in e commerce with hundreds of 1000s of brands that are out there uh, selling their products on various marketplaces. And those brands have very little economic power, all of the economic power is held by the platforms, because the brands themselves have a very difficult time bringing together the information. That they uh, need to be able to grow their business. So we we applied a solution that admittedly comes from our understanding of ad tech, but really added in the e-commerce retail side of the house and added in the logistics side of the house in terms of an awareness of data okay. with which to then reveal and make great decisions.
0: All right. I'm going to find out about both these businesses and a little bit in between. Thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, I, do, you, do you still read your own email, Paul? I do. You do. I, I do too, but I've had my assistant for years go through my email first to just clear it out. I saw your eyes do something. Is that like a shocking thing for you? Is
1: no, I, uh, you done that. Uh, I, it sounds good to me actually. It sounds
0: yes, great. It was so helpful. And then I found SaneBox and SaneBox just automatically will do the things that she did, you know, clear out the stuff that's junk. Tell me what's important. Make sure that I see the things that I need to see in it and not the things that I don't. Anyway, they're making it available to people to try right now. If you're listening to me, you can go to SaneBox.com slash Mixergy. They'll let you try it for free. And, uh, the second sponsor is HostGator where they'll host your website. Like they host mine. Let me see if I understand where this idea came from though. You were you're working at Grit Partners, having conversations as an investor, and what were people talking to you about that led you to found Tradeswell?
1: Yeah, so um, really we saw a whole bunch of deals at uh, Grit Capital Partners, and many of the direct-to-consumer plays that we saw, uh, we passed on because the margins were either thin Uh, or unknown uh, to the uh, brand, or didn't really improve at scale. And so after initially investing in a few members of the TradesWell team uh, to work on a project, I really saw a massive opportunity here to join
0: the team. Wait, so you were VC, you were seeing these ideas come in and you said, "Hey, how about you people build this? And then when it was going, you joined them. Is that right? something like that but i would say these few members of the team i had worked with in the
1: past at millennial media and so i had initially invested in their project and as the project began to have steam i thought about all of these pitches i was seeing where the economics didn't just didn't really make sense because e-commerce wasn't really figured out and here's this team trying to figure out it out and apply technology and artificial intelligence to this data. And gosh, I thought it was an incredible problem to go solve. And so I joined the team as co-founder and CEO to help direct to consumer brands, take advantage of this booming e-commerce market that heretofore has been dominated by the e-commerce giants.
0: Give me a sense of what you were hearing. Do you have, Without obviously mentioning the name of the company, what's an example of someone who came to you that illustrates the problem that you're now solving.
1: An example was uh, a product company that, that came to us and they were completely unsure of whether they could be profitable. So uh, of course, that wasn't their first pitch. But as we dug in with questions about their product-oriented direct-to-consumer business. What type of product are we yeah. talking
0: about? Toothpaste, something like that? This is a grocery product. Grocery product. Okay. So they were selling some kind of grocery product online on multiple platforms, like I described earlier? On multiple platforms and really didn't have an understanding
1: of their profitability because one channel required them to have one logistics scenario.
0: What are the different logistics scenarios that we're talking about? One of them, I'm assuming would be Amazon, where they want to store their products so that they could do next day delivery, Right. That's right. Okay. And then the other one, what else was available?
1: The other one was a third-party logistics uh, uh, solution. But again, if I looked today, I looked at their channels and it looked to me like whether it's Amazon, Amazon seller and vendor and Walmart and those couple of relationships you can have there and Target and uh, Shopify and others, each of those requires a different scheme for fulfillment, for marketing, and for the assortment. And so we looked at this and we said, gosh, how is this problem being solved? And as we looked more deeply into it, realized it's being solved often by agencies and consultants that are high-priced and taking a large percentage of the GMV, in addition to all of that fragmentation being generally more costly.
0: So they would hire one agency and say, we've got our stuff at Walmart, we've got our stuff on our Shopify store, we've got our stuff in Amazon, help us sell more. And the agency I'm imagining then would buy ads and then report back on the number of sales that they got from each ad, but nothing more than that. Am I right?
1: That's, exa- that's exactly right. And as a matter of fact, uh, I'll give you a great story of a skew uh, that we saw from this fall, the advertiser spent... And uh, the brand spent $4,000 and drove $25,000 worth of ad-attributed sales. And their agency was going back to them saying, hey, we've gotten a $5 return on ad spend. In fact, what we see in our platform that we showed the client was actually that if you then look through to cost of goods sold, which we are also pulling in from the clients, if you look into cost of goods sold, Amazon prep. Uh, fulfillment fees, seller fees, yep. storage fees. You look all the way down, they were actually losing 38 cents per unit before they spent the $4,000. So, on one hand, this brand is being told by an agency, hey, we've d- returned $5 for every dollar that you've spent, when in fact, the net situation is negative. $5,500 or something along those lines on, on an overall business of, you know, $40,000 for this one skew.
0: Oh, I talk to e-commerce people fairly often. They're so on top of their numbers, but they don't even put this stuff into a spreadsheet. They're not keeping track of all these expenses. On a, yeah, so they're not because it's so too again, much.
1: So again, I think you have, you have a world that is somewhat bifurcated. On the one hand, you have traditional brands, and they generally have less visibility into their costs, and so they have economic issues having to do with transparency. On the other side, you have direct-to-consumer brands who potentially are funded by VCs. And so VCs are telling them, you must know your unit economics. And they know their unit economics, but they're really not sure exactly how to scale. Perhaps they're on their own website and they're utilizing Shopify and they are scared to move into the other channels Mm -hmm. because they don't really want to do business any less profitably. But the economic picture that can be made more clear to them is one that yes, it might be three times less profitable on this skew uh, to sell your goods on Amazon, but you might do 17 times the sales. Got it. And so, uh, uh, and so, the platform that we've built helps them to understand that.
0: But they weren't even doing this in a chaotic way, in a in a time sucking, time wasting way in spreadsheets. They just weren't getting this level of depth, and as a result, they were staying away from selling in certain places because they knew that they couldn't get enough uh, data on it.
1: That's exactly right. A lot of assumptions. A mm-hmm. lot of great efforts in. Uh, Excel, a lot of great, you know, early sort of looker instances to try and figure out these these uh, uh, type of problems, but uh, uh, never really with the full picture, let alone a platform that allows them to not only reveal what the next optimal the next most optimal action is, but one that will take that action as well.
0: All right, and then that helps me understand why you wanted to do so much that it does make sense to t- for a period there i said why is paul getting into logistics who cares he's the he's the advertising guy just tell them what they're selling tell them how much they're making on it and then let them sell more of it but you do need logistics because because well you help me understand that further to me yeah, well, i think
1: again you know and and we at tradeswell we'll never physically touch a box so we're not yep. in logistics from that perspective but it's the knowledge and the communication of what's happening within logistics and within uh, the operation side of a business is incredibly important for us. And it's incredibly important because you wanna make make sure that you're selling the right thing. You wanna make sure you're optimizing the right thing. And gosh, we arrived on the scene less than a year ago in a market where there were a lot of hands in the cookie jar. Frankly, in 2020, there were elbows in the cookie jar. And you can think about agencies that that, are charging on a percent of ad spend uh, who don't want to stop spending. Uh, But you can also think about logistics companies who are pushing multi-packs, right? So you have 20 SKUs and the logistics company wants to do 10 multi-packs. Well, what happens at the end of the month? You have 10 half pallets full of product that are all generating storage fees. And interestingly, logistics companies make money from storage fees.
0: And they're pushing, I didn't know this, they're pushing their clients, the ones who are storing product with the logistics company and then paying the logistics company to ship it out whenever there's a sale. These logistic companies are saying, why don't you create bundles of your products and we'll help you sell those? Absolutely. I did not realize they were pushing that. Okay. And I I thought that also one of the reasons why you want to do logistics is to just know what's available when you're selling on all these different platforms. I'm on your site right now and there's Target, there's WooCommerce, there's Shopify. Obviously people aren't picking both Shopify and WooCommerce, but we're seeing more and more places where where we can sell, right?
1: Yeah, I think, and in general, you know, what you're you're seeing, you know, quite a bit uh, or what we're seeing quite a bit is brands that will be selling via the vendor channel for Amazon, they'll be in the seller channel for Amazon, and they'll have either a Woo or a, or a Shopify or yeah. something along those lines. And then they will have other, uh, other channels where they're uh, in the seller mode. And the, the trick is to bring all of that data together so that they can see one holistic view of their business and generate uh, a dynamic p and so they can see how the business is growing, taking into account you know, everything from, um, again, the assortment that they're putting it out out there on a skew-by-skew skew level, sales data, marketing data, and then um, uh, the logistics data. And all of that also allows us to help them to forecast as well.
0: Right. I'd like to go back a little bit to, when was it? 2006 is when you created Millennial Media. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about that company. Where did the idea come from?
1: Well... In 2006, so I had just come off uh, uh, a a good run um, working with a team of people to build about a, at the time, about a four and a half billion dollar business at Verizon in mobile data. Um, We launched uh, the first app downloads uh, in 2002. And by 2006, when I left there and started millennial, we had this, you know, very, very large business. And again, still it was a year a year prior to the iPhone. Um, So again, we looked at this problem. We knew there was going to be a big market for ads on mobile devices, but we also knew that it didn't really have to do with the browser, that it really had to do with the apps and it had to do with the economic opportunity and economic power that the smallest developer had.
0: How did you know and, what, what apps were what what apps existed in the early two thousands before the iPhone revolutionized things?
1: So in two thousand two, we launched a service called Get It Now, which was downloadable apps to yep. the first was a Motorola seven twenty uh, smartphone, and uh, we did a hundred million downloads that year, uh, two thousand two. Of what type uh, of apps? Eight. Uh, the bowling, the that bowling app, was the number one app for sure, and that actually almost ten percent of the devices we sold were so had it were had that app or or subsequently downloaded that app. So it was casual games. Yep, it was a, some ringtones uh, and uh, uh, some kind of puzzles and things along those lines.
0: And the bill uh, for that, when somebody bought one of those games, would go on the phone bill, and then the phone company would send the money to the, the the money to Jamdat or whoever. Created. Yeah, that's right.
1: That's right. Okay. And so our big innovation at the time was uh, in uh, Japan. There was one mobile carrier that was sending the lion's share of that revenue back to the developer. We decided to be the first one to do that in the U.S. And so we created a a seventy thirty rev share. Frankly, I think it's the same thirty percent that Apple is uh, that people are complaining about with Apple today, uh-huh. uh, as the then prevailing uh, business
0: model. So Verizon created that first.
1: That's right. That's okay, right. I
0: didn't realize that.
1: All right. Um, we did, and um, so again, it was these games, ringtones, and things along those lines. And along the way, uh, we were charging—I don't know—three ninety-nine, four ninety-nine for a game and uh, uh, we even had some subscription models that were there in the early days. But really, I always thought there would be an advertising model that would, that would really need to drive it. And uh, that's where in 2006, my co-founder and I founded Millennial Media uh, with an idea that we would enable a mobile advertising market, but that really what we were doing was building an economic opportunity for the developers and for the apps. And
0: so I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to understand advertising back then would have meant an ad in the, uh, in the game or in the app leading to, I'm assuming something that then Verizon would bill for that was the original version, like a ringtone that Verizon would then bill for and split with the person who bought the app. It also, there was
1: interaction even in those days between the apps and the browser, So you could uh, recall our first few advertisers uh, were uh, Electronic Arts, um, uh, DiGiorno Pizza. I remember doing in a very early campaign with us and they had nowhere to send people. So we built a mobile site uh, for them in the browser. So it would kick them through over to a browser uh, and they were an early customer. Is the frozen pizza? uh, The theatrical, uh, Hollywood theatrical Mm. category. was very big in the early days as well
0: yep okay all right so then you came up with this i'm assuming you partnered with verizon or did you
1: no No. um we um uh okay so now it's 2006 we partnered with developers uh or sorry publishers uh major league baseball um certainly jammed that because we knew uh knew those folks as well um Uh, anyone who was really building an app for a mobile phone and also running a mobile website. And we would use display ads, whether they were banners or expandable banners or something along those lines over time, what we really realized is we needed to build software development kits for the developers to be able to put them inside their apps Hmm. and that those software development kits sometime really had to be robust because Electronic Arts at the time was considering putting the, putting this into their games and you really can't get that wrong. If you're EA and you're trying to launch Madden Football day and date with your console launch, your mobile your mobile game, um, it really had to be bulletproof. But we became known as as great builders of these software development kits where we would do things like pre-cache video uh, and things along those lines. So we put out the SDKs, and then we built a world-class advertising sales force uh, you know, all over the world uh, as we grew. And, um, you know, it was, it was just fantastic. And, of course, mobile had the other dynamic of location targeting. Yeah. So we built uh, 340 million cross-screen profiles um, that were informed by location and created, uh, audience segments. Uh, and I would say in the middle, middle years of uh, millennial, I would say, you know, 2009 to 2012, that was an incredibly large, uh, part of, uh, the business. And then of course, things began to, uh, go into programmatic. And we, uh, we did some acquisitions. We made, we made that transition as well. And, um,
0: you know, how did both, you transition into, uh, into the iPhone age? How did that go um, for you internally?
1: Yeah. So it a fu- funny story. Uh, you know, we, we go to our uh, June, I want to say uh, June, 2007. Um, uh, it was, I don't know. We went to a board meeting and we had a board member say, well, what about the iPhone? And it was, you know, usage wise, it was the 40th you know, best usage that we've seen. And uh, we had uh, one uh, uh, more junior member of our team speak up and say, hey, it's like the eighth largest, you know, whatever, whatever. And it was like, no, 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 the iPhone is different. It's going to change things. And, um, you know, I would say within a couple of quarters of it launching, and particularly when the App Store launched, I think it was very, very quick where the iPhone usage Uh, it became clear that that's where consumers would begin to have an insatiable desire to go beyond voice on these cell phones and uh, uh, that our model uh, brought through the developers would be compelling.
0: And so it took you a little while to understand that you needed to go there. You did go into there. Did you do it? Did you, were you, um, when the app store launched, were you in the apps that were in the app store?
1: We were in um, a few of them. Um, I want to say Pandora, Angry Birds, um, a few others, but I, you know, we were in of the top, at a point of the top hundred apps, we were in 60 or so of the apps and of the ad age top 100 advertisers, we were uh,
0: doing business with 90 of those at a point. You raised what, 60, $65 million, somewhere around there.
1: Yeah, I think it was 69 million over uh, of about four rounds of venture funding. Um, We raised, uh, we did the IPO, um, raised uh, probably another 150 million in that primary. There, Um, they never talk about secondaries, but we had a we had fantastic uh, success uh, in that area as well,
0: and um, you know it was good. And then you sold for 238 million dollars. So actually, we took the company public in
1: 2012. Okay. In early 2014, after delivering a 109 million dollar revenue quarter, um, I stepped down and went into the venture area. And at that time, I did you know the what the what the best practice is the Jack Welch best practice, which is if you're a popular you know CEO stepping down, don't hang around the board. And mm-hmm. so. I stepped down in early 2014, uh, uh, end of January, uh, and uh, we hired Michael Barrett to come in and, and uh, uh, a be our head coach. And uh, uh, he then uh, uh, continued to grow the company, and uh, the company again was acquired in the following uh, year. The following, late the following year, I think October of 2015. But I wasn't involved with the company at that time.
0: Okay. Is it inappropriate to ask if you divested yourself at that point of the of the business?
1: Uh, at the time I left, yeah, no, no definitely okay. not. You're still team. an investor. Still, it's my like, baby. This is okay. my team. i still the at the time of the uh, at the time of the um, uh, acquisition, I was still the largest individual shareholder.
0: Oh wow. So then considering how much money, this is this is getting inappropriate, I don't know you well enough, but considering how much money you'd raised and then the sale price, it doesn't seem like it was as strong as you would have expected, right? Oh, no, 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 no. Because?
1: We actually, because our enterprise valuation at IPO, where we sold into the IPO was 1.6 billion. And um, in the secondary, which again, nobody talks about these things, was over two.
0: And, but then- but then, did you sell for less than that for less than a quarter million dollars, or am I misreading this? Maybe I'm misreading the articles. Yeah, yeah, no.
1: the company, the company was acquired for substantially less than the valuation. Yeah. Uh, in in the year or two after we went public. That's correct.
0: Why, what happened?
1: Well, i I, uh, I think that's a good that's a good question for the uh, for the management team that uh, okay. that that, uh, that was there. But what I but the honest truth is, yeah, on the quarter that I stepped down, the, that we were just reporting the fourth quarter of 2013, Facebook's ad revenue in mobile was zero. Mm. And oh, yeah. almost day and date when I stepped down, they went hard after mobile advertising. Uh. and so I, I think it was a pretty tough thing to be a mobile advertising company in 2014 and 2015, because Facebook was definitely taking a bunch of air out of the room, no okay. question about it. And they executed very well, frankly, as did the team at Millennial Media. Um, but, um, but you know the, the reality is, in that period of time, you saw Google and you saw Facebook begin to get the kind of advertising primacy that they enjoyed for at least three or four years before Amazon began to really
0: get deeply involved in the advertising space. Got it. Okay. All right. How'd you like being a VC? That was your next thing. Uh, It was great. I think it was was hard to make that transition. Um,
1: I think everybody who's an operator thinks they'd be a great investor because you, because you've seen a lot mm-hmm. and you kind of feel like you're going to understand things like exits and deal momentum and things along those lines. And that is true, but there's a lot of nuance in the investing area as well. And so, you know, I, you know, I learned, I got lucky on a bunch of stuff and I got, I, I learned tough lessons on a bunch of stuff, you know, learn, definitely learned the value of investing in the people over the idea. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, definitely have a, you know, a couple of, couple of nice size, uh, scars from that, which is great.
0: What'd you um, learn about it, investing in the wrong people? What makes somebody the wrong person in your experience? Well, n-
1: not necessarily the wrong people, but, but I guess my point is that the idea can't be stronger
0: than the people. And uh, so, so the wrong people for the idea. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, tell me I what mean, you mean. Help me understand. I, I, I mean,
1: if you have this great idea, that's like, potentially a world beating idea. And the person who has that idea is, has a difficult time raising money. Mm. It's not going to be successful, no matter what they do.
0: If it's a great idea, why would the person not do well raising money? What is it about the person in your experience that keeps them from raising money?
1: Uh, Probably, probably insular thinking, small thinking things Mm. along those lines. But I would say, um, you know I could I could I could name I could name names, but I'm not going no, to. But, but, uh-huh. but you know, what I'll say is, uh, you know, there was there was one where I still think it could have been a world beating idea. and it still hangs around as a zombie today, where every nine months the the you know the team raises another five hundred k to kind of okay. keep them going, and that's been going on for seven or eight years or something along those lines. So
0: anyway, I what learned do you think a lot that. They could do, what do you think that someone could do better in that situation? Or just give up if it's if it's a zombie at that point, just move on and start something else. Well, I think that's right. I think yeah.
1: I think knowing when to quit is is really important. Um, I also think it's I also think it's it's incredibly important when you're making an investment to make sure that the people you're investing in are going to be incredibly compelling as CEOs. Mm. because a lot of decision making that investors will have downstream of you as a seed investor will will do that calculus and so you mm. know at, at nea uh we used to have uh uh discussions about you know is this an nea ceo
0: yeah you know
1: is this the kind of ceo that can get a check from us that i
0: didn't know you were at nea thing. this that's the biggest vc firm isn't it
1: yeah. So when I left Millennial Media, I, I went to NEA for um, um, about, uh, about two years as a venture okay. advisor um, and, uh, and then started my own and did some of my own side investing as well, in, in which I learned this lesson I was okay. referring to. And then started my own firm, uh, Grid Capital Partners with one partner, uh, Mike Flannery in uh, New York City. And that fund has done phenomenally well. I'm so glad I learned the lessons I learned. Uh, early on in that uh, investing run because Grit Capital's done incredibly well and um, we're actually uh, uh, beginning to raise our second fund uh, as we
0: speak. Why'd you name it Grit? I feel like that says something about you.
1: Um, I believe that uh, passion and perseverance uh, really trumps a lot of things in life. Mm -hmm. and uh, it does say a lot about me. I'm a kid from Jersey living in Baltimore Uh and loving it. And uh, so, you know, to me, I think, you know, it's all about grit. It's all about what are you willing to do to be able to be successful? And that's whether you're um, uh, whether you're uh, running a youth group at a church or whether you're an entrepreneur building a company or whether you're, you an accountant in a big, in a big accounting firm and are, you know, going about your day. You know, if you, if you put your shoulder in and you're determined, uh, you have a much better chance of succeeding than somebody who had the right smarts, the right education, the right, this, and the right, that give an example of when right. you did
0: that, when you, when you showed grit, one story that kind of sticks out for you about your life.
1: Well, um, I would say, um, I would say this investing piece, I think, you know, just to be honest, uh, I, I, um, I, I, leave millennial media. I'm a wealthy person and, uh, I decide, Hey, well, doesn't everybody get into the venture capital area? And, uh, uh, and in fact, you know, you, you invest, you, you learn difficult lessons and, you know, it it takes a while to sort of grind, you know, frankly uh, you know, if it were 20 years earlier and I was a um, uh, zero to public CEO where everybody made money uh, I would have been, you know, picked up as a, as a a full-time GP in a heartbeat. Um, I didn't get many of those offers though. Um, And so I ended up starting my own firm. And so, you know, that's it. It's just like grit and determination. I'm going to learn this. I'm not only going to learn how to invest, but I'm going to learn how to run a fund. Mm. I'm going to learn how to raise my own money uh, as a fund. And I'm going to learn how to do the reporting and hit the numbers and hit the marks and, uh, you know, be value add uh,
0: to, the, uh, to the companies we invested in. And, uh, and that's- but Didn't you get a you know, shot again, with NEA? If it's two years at NEA, didn't you get a shot at NEA? If it was two years there,
1: so again at NEA, I was I was venture advisor, so it's kind of like venture partner. So uh, it's kind of like come and go as you please, sit in on the meetings, uh, help help companies here and there. If you really, you know, if you really wanted to, jo- you know, join the firm, I think I probably could have leaned in, but I was in kind of the mode of coming off of millennial, and I was probably enjoying, you know, time a little uh-huh. time uh, uh, less busy at the time, but really, you know, you know, figuring all of that out and finding out that really the answer for me was start your own, which is much more of an entrepreneurial journey, um, was, was an area where I kind of used grit to get myself from one place to another.
0: All right, let's talk about trades, well. But first, I, I want to say that my first, my my big sponsor for this interview is a company called Top Tail uh, Tal- Hostgator. Paul, you do you know you have a presence about you. I don't know what it is, but the reason partially that we're stumbling over each other is there's a little bit of a lag. But I also have to say there's something very intimidating and very boss about you right from the start. I don't do you always have that? I used to do that to to my friends. I would be even as like a a seven year old. I would have this this look in my eyes like. What are you even talking about? And I would intimidate them through that, and I didn't mean to. Did you always have yeah. this "I'm the boss" type of attitude, type of personality? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. And uh, don't get me wrong, uh, you're a likable person. I could see it. Your smile makes you likable. There's a there's stuff that we've talked about even before we got started, made me feel comfortable with you. But there's still a, hey, I'm the boss. We're not screwing around here. We're getting to work. Attitude.
1: I definitely, I definitely have a. a All business uh, side of me, so that's you know I don't don't know what I can say.
0: (laughs) All right, so HostGator, they will HostGator will host websites uh, on the WordPress platform with WooCommerce. Let me ask you this, Paul: You've seen a lot of uh, e-commerce companies come around. Imagine someone's listening to us and says, "You know what? I got to get in on this e-commerce thing. I'm going to go to HostGator. I'll set up a WordPress site. I'll add WooCommerce. I'll be up and running with a store." Do you have any ideas for what they should be selling? What's what's something they could start right now? to offer online? What's a good, what, what have you seen do well?
1: Well, it's hard, it's hard to say what hasn't really done well in the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very broad based, but I would say um, relative to uh, things mm-hmm. that do well in e-commerce, I mean, grocery is hot. Health and beauty is hot. Grooming is incredibly hot uh, right now. Uh, so those spaces I would say are, are incredibly uh, strong
0: groceries is in like, you could imagine somebody selling Well, this one guy who, who I've been chatting with online. He sells nothing but onions. I think he owns, oh, I forget the name. I think onions.com even is one of his domains. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's a, he's totally into onions now and uh, ranch life, but you're saying even something like that, like a grocery item like that, that's specialty to them, they could sell it, ship it. That's hot. No,
1: yeah, that's right. And, and then the other just kind of like inside baseball one is you want, uh, You want a low weight, low cube. Okay. Okay. So cube is the dimension. Yes. So you can imagine that a big brick of toilet paper is heavy. Yeah. And the dimensions also drive the shipping price.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So something like a silicone ring (laughs) that you then put into an envelope and ship it. Uh, if I were advising uh, uh, this person, I would say find something that is low cube,
0: low weight, and, and durable, about, and repeat sales. Like if you're thinking about groceries, not potatoes, but saffron That's right. That's Be exactly the spice right. rack of the internet, the specialty, we go direct to the farmer, we grow it ourselves type of thing. That could be that could be very good. You smiled as I said that. I got one of the biggest smiles from you. Have you seen someone do well with that, or did we just hit on a really great idea?
1: Uh, no, I think it's. I okay. think it's actually you're hitting on a great idea.
0: <laughs> um, all right. So if you've come up with that idea or anything else or steal my idea or want to partner with me on my idea, go host it right. And HostGator.com will take great care of you. If you go to HostGator.com Mixergy, throw that slash Mixergy at the end, they'll give you their absolute lowest price and they'll take great care of you because they'll know that you came from me. HostGator.com slash Mixergy. Um, did you have conversations with potential customers before you launched the, or created the first version?
1: Uh Yes. You Absolutely. Didn't.
0: How? What were the conversations like? What did you learn that you didn't know? Considering how much experience you're already bringing in.
1: Well, I have a lot of I have a number of co founders that have incredible experience in specifically in the e commerce space, and so frankly, it was them doing the questioning of uh, of of people they knew who were, you know, looking for much more liquid access to their data. much more of a real-time view of what was going on and also really understood this interplay between uh, uh, what's happening in uh, marketing and what's happening in logistics and how that affects the assortment. If you have a $5 box of pancake mix and Amazon's going to charge you $6 on Prime Day to ship it, we want to take that off the market on Prime Day. We want to put the twenty-dollar box, a pancake mix, uh, you know, on it. And so it's like it's it's insights like this, even before we built the uh, the platform, that really uh, that really have informed our thinking
0: uh-huh. around why this problem really needs to be solved as a holistic matter. So it is. Holistic, it goes from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to create this first version to the point where you can actually give it to a retailer and say this, or to excuse me, to to an online right. creator and and well, online creator to uh, what is it to 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 store to an online? It's not a store. It's there, they're makers and sellers. What's yeah, the phrase right. so you use for brands? Your I would brands. say
1: you know we we kind of say brands, and our core is digital-first marketplace brands. Okay how we, how we kind of think about it. and um, so what I would say is we got a, we got a minimum viable product, first platform up very quickly and we very quickly got uh, paying customers on it that began uh, that began to use it. And what was so, in that first
0: version? What was in that MVP?
1: Uh, well, uh, definitely the uh, uh, data visualization across uh, various channels, Um, and definitely the first version of the algorithms around uh, shopper marketing.
0: The first version of, what does that mean? The first versions of the algorithm around shopper marketing. So um, the first versions of the algorithms that would drive the ad spend. Uh, That would understand what should be sold based on existing sales, based on performance of the ads.
1: And also like, what should the bid prices be, and what is the impact of that on net margins, et cetera?
0: So did you work with agencies first, or how did you get your first clients?
1: No, um, we worked with uh, so a couple of our co-founders have been um, in uh, CPG for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, one in particular, uh, Ron Puji. Uh, he was with uh, uh, PepsiCo. Ah, uh, in e-commerce uh, for 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 a while, and then uh, led e-commerce at McCormick Spice as well, and uh, back to the uh, back to the spice uh, yeah uh, uh, thing, which is probably probably why the uh, the uh, the wink and the nod. So yeah, it's good. So actually, McCormick was one of our first customers.
0: Yeah, I it's- see it up on your site off- right it. now. What's that? I see it on your site right now.
1: Yeah, McCormick. So solving this for for uh, solving you know uh, the some of these e-commerce challenges and you know McCormick I think in the in the very early days was looking for a very specific uh, you know kind of a very specific thing that, that we solved for them but um, uh, again w- we got this minimum viable product up and uh, and very quickly thereafter you know, began to bring customers onto the platform again. I think we have, a, we have a team that has credibility, both in the ad tech space, but also in the e-commerce space. Mm-hmm. And so I think people are generally willing to give us a shot, especially the things we did at Millennial around building, uh, connecting data sources and appending data to add impressions and appending audience members to various other audiences. Uh, and um, I think that, that really helps what we're
0: doing here what's working now for getting customers? What's your number one channel?
1: Number one channel I would say is our, uh, our SDR effort is, mm. uh, is incredibly strong. So, um, uh, so we're, we're using a set of SDRs that we've hired internally and, uh, working with uh, a consulting firm to kind of help us, uh, sort of, uh, get up and running with that. And, um,
0: Uh, Sales development reps. These are the people who identify potential customers, start warming them up. And then when there's an interest in talking to one of your, one of your salespeople, they schedule it. And then the salesperson does nothing but talk to customers. Doesn't do any of the canvassing.
1: That's exactly right. And sorry for the acronym soup, but yes, definitely. This sales development rep path is a great path. And it's, uh, it's one where there can be a little bit of, uh, um, a uh, low risk communication back and forth with a customer super comfortable for customers as well and again we're you know we're doing something here with software and software is supposed to is supposed to make things less expensive and we're also you know we're adding adding that value as well too so
0: it's good all right so if we let's close it out with this if we look back five years from now what what do you hope to see what do you think TradeSwell will be doing? I mean, I think
1: I think we want what we want people to have said about us is that we've democratized some of the intelligence, so that brands have the tools that they need to sell on any platform and accelerate their their growth across multiple different platforms. Um, I think we'd also uh, we'd also like people to look at it and say hey, once upon a time, people worry, were worrying about, will Amazon make enough money to keep my SKU alive? And they transitioned over time into thinking about themselves and am I making enough money on all of the channels that, uh, that Instead I'm Instead of hoping on?
0: that Amazon will keep their e-commerce business going, it's them getting to do it by putting it in lots of different places. What's, what's the most interesting marketplace right now that you're seeing or what do you see as one of the most pro, um, promising marketplaces?
1: Well, I think, I think uh, uh, it depends on the category, but um, I certainly think uh, Walmart is moving very quickly. Um, mm. uh, they had a, a, an announcement on Walmart Connect uh, this past week. They are moving very quickly. Um, uh, Target, Roundel, that is moving very quickly. And, uh, and then I would look at, you know, sort of some of the niche areas that are out there, Ulta, even, uh, Wayfair, uh, yeah. um, um, and that's interesting. And then the last thing is uh, the piece around, do I order it online and, and uh, pick up in store? And, uh, and, and so some of the online marketplaces are setting themselves up to really not care either way whether it gets shipped to you or whether it gets picked up in store. And I think those are interesting dynamics too. And we see that from Home Depot uh, and others.
0: Do you think social is going to be an all-in-one solution? Do you think we'll be able to set up a shop completely on, on Instagram?
1: Oh, I, oh, I, I think so. I think so. You know, Shopify's number of Shopify. uh, uh, Merchants has gone, you know, in a very short period of time from 700k to upwards of 1.2 million, I believe. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's due in large part to some of the uh, partnerships that they've done, whether that's Walmart, whether that's Facebook, but mm. absolutely, I think social is, uh, is a great opportunity.
0: All right. The website is tradeswell.com. For anyone who wants to go check it out. I love it. If people in my audience start to sign up and gave me some feedback on it, I'd love to hear about it. Everyone, my email address is Andrew at mixergy.com. I want to know about every, everything. And I know I can handle it well because I've got uh, SaneBox managing my inbox so that if it does get spam, SaneBox will take care of it. I do want to hear from you. Let me know how this interview went. Let me know about um, how TradesWell is doing for you at mixergy.com. Thank you. Thanks, Paul.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so Thanks. much.
0: Bye, everyone.